Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. Well, in the next few moments, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about God's presence and our problems. God's presence and our problems. We all understand that life is filled with problems, and as James says, there are various kinds of troubles. They come in all sizes, all shapes, all varieties. Often when you least expect it, there is a problem that arises. Some of them can have the capacity to really stir us up internally. In fact, in my own experience, I would say that more challenging almost always than the problems themselves are what the problems do to us. That we find ourselves stirred up, we find ourselves unable to, to achieve a peace in the Lord, maybe Maybe you're laying awake at night, you can't sleep, you can't settle down because there's a problem. For some, it's a fear that takes root, it dominates your thinking, and you find it hard to literally think or talk about anything else other than the problem. When it comes to the world and how the world handles anxiety and handles problems, I don't care what book you read on overcoming worry or uh, conquering anxiety, pretty much the world's advice comes down to four statements. You can read all the books, I've read several of them, and essentially you can boil it down to four statements. Number one, realize that The thing you're worried about may not happen. That you might be worried about something that's never going to happen. And that's true. I mean, I think of C.M. Ward. He was an old preacher, and he would quote this, the worried old cow would have lasted till now if she hadn't lost her breath. But she thought her hay wouldn't last all day, so she choked herself to death. (laughs) Sometimes she was so worried. The worry does more to them than the problem. Second, the world would tell you, consider it that it might not be as bad as you think. Sometimes we do have, it's true, we have a tendency to to create a problem and make it bigger in our mind than it actually is. We dread something only to walk through it and find out it wasn't as bad as we had thought. Third, the world will tell you, and I'm not saying the world's wrong, I'm just saying it's the best the world can do. The world will tell you, recognize you're wasting your time because worrying won't get you anywhere. I mean, it's like somebody said, worry's like a rocking chair, sitting in it gives you a sense of movement, but you don't go anywhere. So, you know, worrying, you can sit and, and worry, but it doesn't help. Number four, the world says, visualize a satisfying future and focus on that future. In other words, rather than thinking on the problem, think of the problem being resolved and you having a great future and think on that. Now, all of that's fine as far as it goes. However, I would suggest to you that the Bible does not give that kind of advice. In fact, When you come to Psalm 27, it's almost as if David is visualizing the worst that can happen to him. 
Look at it in Psalms 27 and verse 10. Even if my father and mother abandon me, we have no record of that ever happening. We don't, scholars don't think it ever happened. What David is saying is he's talking about the Lord. He's talking about the presence of the Lord. He's talking of the ability of God to care for him and how he processes. And he goes through and he says, listen, if the people who are closest to me turn on me, even then I don't have to worry. Even then, I don't have to be filled with anxiety. He's not saying it's easy. In fact, he's saying that's one of the worst things that could happen. But even then, I don't have to worry. He says in Psalm 27 and verse 3, though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if, and this is why we think again it's hypothetical. Has David ever been in battle and been surrounded? Yes. But he's going through a series of hypotheticals in his life, and he says, even if I'm attacked, I will remain confident. David says there is a place for God's people in the midst of battle, in the midst of problems, in the midst of abandonment, where there is a confidence that is divine. Where you're not being tossed around, you're not cowering in fear. You're not filled with anxiety. You're not biting your fingernails at night, but you are confident and you are secure. What he's doing is exactly the opposite of the world's advice. He's actually imagining the worst things that could happen to him, and he's saying that there's not only a way to have your problems solved, but there's a way to have peace of mind and confidence in the midst of those problems. <laughs> David, essentially, it's as if he's writing down his strategy for handling the problems that are a part of everyone's life. What's his plan? What's his strategy? What's the secret of a worry-free life? Let me give you three words. The first is dwelling. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. What does it mean? What's David thinking about when he talks about dwelling in the house of the Lord? Well, I want to suggest to you that he is not primarily thinking of a physical building or a physical place. For starters, when David writes this, there is no temple. It is his son Solomon who builds the temple after David's death. At the time David is writing this, there is a tabernacle, which is a tent, and no one lives in it. The priests and the Levites serve at it, but nobody resides in it. Therefore, what David is talking about is not you and I living in this building or any other building, but what he's talking about is he is desiring a continual experience of God's presence in his life. Let me put it this way. He wants to continually see God's face. 
Now, something interesting in Psalm 105, it says, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. When you see that the Hebrew doesn't really have a word for presence, the, the, the word that it uses is face. So if you're to look this verse up in the Hebrew, you would find that the Hebrew word there is the word that is translated face. And in fact, some translations do translate this verse, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face continually. What David is saying is, I want to be in your presence. And people will say, well, you know, uh, God is everywhere. You can go anywhere and God is there. That's right, but there's a difference between being in a presence of someone and having a relationship with that someone. For example, Randall Cartwright, he does a great job at worship, doesn't he? Let's give a big round of applause, Randall. Good old Randall. Randall led worship tonight. You could say, I was in Randall's presence tonight. But you could not say you met Randall unless you came up to him and had a face-to-face -face encounter with Randall. The face is the relational gate to the heart. You can't have a relationship with somebody across the auditorium if you're never face to face. You can't look at Randall's foot, his stylish tennis shoes, his cool jackets, and have a relationship with Randall. You have to look at his face. You have to see him face to face. Here's what David's saying. David is saying, I want a face-to-face -face relationship with God. I want him face-to-face. -face. Now watch this, Psalm 27, verse 8. My heart says of you, seek his face. God, I want to see your face in my life all the time. God, I want you to show up in my life all the time. I want to be able to talk to you all the time. I want to be in relationship with you all the time. That's what it means. I, my heart says of you, seek his presence. It's the same. It's the idea. God, I want your face, your person, your presence. I want, I want to talk to you, relate to you. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Then he says, do not hide your face from me. Do not reject me or forsake me, oh God, my Savior. He says, God, I, I don't ever want to be in a place where I'm not having the face-to-face -face relationship with you in my life. What does it mean to dwell? One thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord, that God, I might have face-to-face -face relationship with you always and forever, 24-7, 365 a year. I want to be in your presence. The psalmist says this, one thing I ask of the Lord, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord. It's very interesting. Here's David, and he starts out, the, the Lord is, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
And then he begins to recount these hypotheticals. Very, very interesting. David, as he thinks of the things that could go wrong in his life, and he thinks of the problems he may face in his life, it, what he talks about in the psalm is not, Lord, I need you to do this, or I need you to do that. I need you to take those enemies, and you need to defeat them, and I need you. No, what he says is the most important thing in all of this is that you and I are face-to-face. I don't know what you're going through, and I don't know what you're up against, and I'm not in any way minimizing the problems that can be a part of our life. But more important than your problem is his presence and you having face-to-face encounter with him. David is saying this is the key to everything. And he says one thing. That's a super intense construction in the Hebrew language. you, You could think of it this way. One, 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 only one thing. David, what do you want? One, 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 only one thing I seek. He's not saying a thousand things I need from God. And it's not wrong to tell God the thousand things you need from him, but that shouldn't be your priority if you want to know his peace. There's a place, I'm not suggesting we don't present our petitions, but for too many people, their prayer life consists of a laundry list of requests, and that's it. Try that on your best friend and see how long they're your best friend. We treat God like we wouldn't treat anybody else, and then we wonder why our prayer life's dry. And we wonder why there's no presence. David says, one, 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 and only one thing I seek. I want to have face-to-face relationship, unbroken fellowship with God. You say, how do you do that? Number two, you gaze, gazing. So there's dwelling and there's gazing. Look at this. One, 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 and only one thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I might have a face-to-face. You know, the Bible says the Lord would talk to Moses face-to-face as a man talks with his friend. God desires that for you. The Bible says Enoch walked with God and was not for God took him because God just loved. God was like, you know, Enoch, you and I just so love hanging out together. Why don't you just go ahead and hang out with me for the rest of eternity? And Enoch was like, game on. I'm in. It's what I want. These are stories. These are illustrations of God's invitation to know him in his presence in a way none of us can imagine and to a degree none of us could comprehend. Here's David. He says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What does it mean to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? David could have said, uh, what I want to do is I want to look at God. I want to I see God. But instead he uses the word gaze, and it's a little bit of a difficult Hebrew word to translate. And so maybe the way to understand it, gaze is not bad, but maybe a way to understand it is stare. 
to just be transfixed on God. It means to look at him and look at him and look at him and look at him some more, so much so that it's burned into your mind, your imagination, so that you can recall or recollect recollect that thought and the attendant emotions instantly. I mean, what we're here, what we're talking about here is not a vision of God. We're not talking about, oh God, give me a vision of you. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what he's talking about. David is saying, I don't want to just abstractly or even just theologically understand God. I want a heart experience with him. We're not minimizing the knowledge. The knowledge leads you to the heart experience. You, You have to know who he is and what he's like in order to gaze on him and experience his presence in that dimension. John Owen, the Puritan, said this, if we settle for mere mental notions about Christ as doctrine, we shall find no transforming power given to us. This this is a really good word for a lot of Christians who all they want to do is study the Bible, they just don't want to gaze on the Lord. Knowledge as an end in itself is a dead end. And we all know people who know their Bibles really well, but have no transforming power or presence on their life, and it's tragic. This is what John Owen is saying. You could know all about Jesus, but that can't be an end in itself, and if that's all you have, there's no transforming power, even if you're orthodox in your theology and you have it all down. But when our affections cleave to him with full purpose of heart and our minds fill up with thoughts and delight in him, then change in character will proceed to purify us and sometimes fill us with joy unspeakable and full of glory. In other words, gazing on God, it it starts with his attributes, who he is, what he's like, what he's revealed about himself, but it goes beyond the knowledge of that attribute, and it actually takes and thinks about that attribute until the reality of that attribute is felt in the heart. For example... We know God is a God of love. That's one of his attributes. He's a God of love. But to to gaze upon him is to hold up that truth of his love and to think about it and to meditate on it and to reflect on it until suddenly you not only know about the love of God, but you're experiencing the love of God in your heart. At that point, you have gazed on his beauty, and he has become more beautiful than you ever imagined. This is when God becomes that real to you and you've gazed on whatever one, his wisdom, his power, you gaze upon his power, his sheer awesomeness, and you think about it until all of a sudden you find yourself enthralled and enveloped in this sense of his power. And in that moment, you can recall, you can recollect that power. So when you're in a season of difficulty, rather than worrying about the problem, you're thinking of the God who is so powerful. He's so much bigger than the problem. Your heart is at ease. You're gazing on the beauty of God. 
Let me say, let me suggest to you that I, I think it can happen through private meditation and, and should. But it also happens through worship. This is the value of worship and, and having worship where you're hearing it, not just on Sunday, certainly it helps in, in a, any worship service, but you're worshiping the Lord, you're praising him for, his, for his, what he does, for who he is, for how wonderful he is. I mean, think of it relationally. This is what lovers do. You're always telling the other person how wonderful they are. And as you tell them how wonderful they are, you find yourself thinking all the more how what? Wonderful they are. Do that to God. Begin to declare how wonderful he is. Begin to, uh, to exalt him for that, and you will find that God in that moment is not only useful as a problem solver, he is beautiful in his presence. What David is calling for is that you and I would move from just seeing God as utilitarian. Oh, he's, he's the break, the break the glass when there's a fire. That's what he's for. When I have a problem, I go to God. No. Does he solve problems? Yes. But he desires so much more that you and I would know him, not just as a useful God, but as a glorious and a beautiful God. And I would suggest to you in heaven that one second in heaven when we have a redeemed mind and we see him with our eyes, that we will be so enthralled with his beauty and his glory and his majesty that time will, will be gone in our thoughts and our thinking as we worship him. And stand in awe of him, enjoying his presence. I would say this. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some have never experienced it. You are in for a, an uptick in your life and your experience, your encounter with God like you've never known. It will take you to a new place in the Lord. Third word, and I'll move quickly here. I'll have the musicians come seeking. One, 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 and only one thing I ask of the Lord this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. The Hebrew word for seek means to go and get counsel. In other words, what it's saying is, what David is saying is, I want to gaze on his beauty. I want to have a face-to-face. -face. And what I want to know is, God, what is it that you want me to do? Notice it's not that I may seek him again. I'm not, I'm not opposed to going to God for our needs. But I'm suggesting that it is an ill-formed prayer life that only sees God as useful and not as beautiful, that only sees God as the genie in the bottle and not the sovereign on the throne. That something is lost in our enjoyment of God and our experience of the peace and the power of God when we separate ourselves from the will of God. And maybe what we need more than anything in a 
in the midst of a problem, when we're facing a problem, is to say, Lord, I don't want my will, and God, what I want in my life, if people have abandoned you, if an army has encircled you, if people are attacking you, Lord, what I want in this moment, more than I want, you can win the battle, I, I, I get that. What I want is to know your will. What do you have for me? What do you want to do? What are you doing in this, in this situation? Because obviously you're leading me through it. So God, I, I just want to face to face. And God, I just want to enjoy your presence. And God, I just want to do your will. David's saying, what I want to do is I want to dwell, that is, have a face-to-face -face relationship with God. I want to gaze, that is, to have the reality of who he is become real in my heart and in my head. And I want to seek, I want to know and follow God's will for my life. And when those three come together, let me, let me tell you what's going to happen. There's not a problem you'll ever face this side of heaven, and there's no problems in heaven. But there's not a problem you'll ever face that will rock you, that will shake you, that will knock you off balance. Listen to this, Isaiah 26 and verse 3, God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is what? Stayed on thee. The one who has the face to face, the one who's beholding his beauty, the one who is saying, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. And then you live in a presence of the Lord that envelops you in a way that makes the problems not inconsequential. It just simply makes them so much more manageable. And instead of them dominating you, you by the power and the grace of the Lord dominate them with confidence. David ends the psalm with these words. I'm still confident of this. I'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. Wait for the Lord.